Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. I think the most common question that we get at Good Fight or at Blessed Hope Chapel, our home church, is, hey, uh, I go to this church or I'm looking for a church, I haven't found a church, and so forth. And then after that, there are a number of different questions, and I would say people asking the question concerning the book of Enoch, specifically First Enoch, that one is right up there in the top 10. So we thought, why not talk about it on a live show? This is really important because I, I think people, and I've seen people give a lot of excuses for why they think, oh, no, no, you got, you, First Enoch is part of Scripture. The Ethiopian canon has it in something, in like the 5th century, by the way. Uh, and over and over again, you'll see things like this. Well, there's this remote area where they accept this, so therefore we should all accept it. And it's simply not the case. And one of the things we want to do is not only give you somewhat of a historical understanding, because as Joe mentioned with Jesus, you don't see Jesus saying, you know, in First Enoch, or <laughs> he wouldn't say that, but in the <laughs> sense of as the scriptures say, what you see is Jesus, specifically if you look at Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he uses a version of the Tanakh, which is an acronym for the law, the writings, right, mm-hmm. and the prophets. And it was a threefold understanding of the scripture that we have today. They would have the same scriptures we have today under that threefold understanding, which Jesus had in Luke 24, which did not contain. We know for a fact it's not in the Septuagint. It's not in early any early text in terms of what the Jews believed about First Enoch. And as we read it, as we're talking about these quotes, one of the important things to do is set aside, okay, any biases because it may, you know, but it felt good and it, and it really opened this up and it made sense to me. We're not saying that you can't read things and understand some of the beliefs that maybe in the second test, uh, second temple Judaism, some of those prophetic movements may have had at that time. What we're saying is it's not inspired by God. And when you read some of the things, as we're going to read straight from it, so you guys can sit here and read. And when you have a different Messiah in First Enoch, I would say you could burn that thing. What a waste of time if you have a different Messiah. And if you're telling people and encouraging people, this is this is the word of God because the Ethiopian canon accepts it, that's where you're getting into dangerous territory, in all honesty. And I would encourage you to just go back to the scriptures. And when we read from it, and you see very clearly that this is just honestly, it's not inspired by God. That's fine that you can learn from it. We can learn from a lot of things. We read early church fathers and, and so forth. It doesn't mean I hold them up as scripture. Yeah, absolutely well said, Chad. Uh, also, First Enoch, we read <coughs> that God was actually repentant and and uh, you know was felt he was wrong or you know that he flooded the earth and so forth. And that's not what the scriptures say. In chapter fifty-five, verses one and two of First Enoch, says God. Uh, and after this, he, the head of days, repented and said, "I have destroyed to no purpose all those who dwell upon the dry ground." Did God ever say that he destroyed? To them, to no purpose, that it was like, ah, oh, nothing good came out of it. No, not at all. 
Or, and after this, the head of days repented and said in vain, I have destroyed all who dwell upon the earth. Never says he destroyed them in vain. In fact, we're told over and over again that this is an object lesson of what God would do when he brought a fiery judgment upon the wicked. And it obviously had a great effect because the flood shows that God uh, is a God of judgment, of holiness, of righteousness. The scriptures reveal through the flood, according to First Peter or Second Peter chapter 3, that there is not this idea that's a satanic lie of uniformitarianism where everything just stays the same, but there is actually ca- catastrophism. The world bears the marks of a worldwide flood as does every pretty much ancient culture that speaks of the flood. They, it's quite uh, mind-boggling that the book of Enoch, someone would read that and say, oh, this is, this is another book of the Bible, when in fact it says that God repented of that uh, and it was done in vain. No, it's confusing it with right before that where God is grieved because he made humanity. But that doesn't mean that even humanity was made in vain because God had a plan through the story of redemption. So it's confusing another aspect of the of what happened regarding the flood, but not of him repenting or uh, that he destroyed mankind and, and it was in vain. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of a lot of just lies in the book of Enoch. Enoch states again, I mentioned earlier that the angel Gadriel is the one who really deceived Eve, not Satan which is a a radical contradiction of Genesis chapter 3 with Revelation chapter 12 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The book of Enoch states this in chapter 69, verse 6, Gadriel, this is the one that showed all the deadly blows to the sons of men, and he led astray Eve, and he showed the weapons of death to the children of men. In Genesis 3, 4, we read that the serpent said to the woman, not Gadriel, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3, and verses 13 and 14, we read, Paul says, But are afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then in verse 13, a few verses later, he identifies that serpent as, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan, that's the reference to the serpent, disguise himself as the angel of light. And just the, you know, the makes it super clear in Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the serpent is equated with Satan over and over again. We also see that in Revelation chapter 20, where we see the serpent is identified as Satan, not Gadriel. And Gadriel is distinct from Satan in Enoch. So we see these things over and over and over again. In fact, it's interesting, we see false prophecies regarding, uh, you know, of the flooding of the earth in Enoch chapter 10, verse is 20 through 22, we read, And you cleanse the earth from all wrong and uh, from all iniquity and from all sin and from all impiety and from all the uncleanness which was brought up upon the earth. So God's cleansing it from all the sin, it states. And then it says, And all the sons of men shall be righteous, and all the nations shall serve and bless me and shall worship me. And the earth will be cleansed from all corruption and from all sin and from all wrath and from all torment. And I will not again send a flood upon it for all generations forever. Notice he says that he'll cleanse the earth of all this sin and unrighteousness and all the sons of men will be righteous. And all the nations will serve and bless me and shall worship me as a result of the flood. Is that what happened after the flood? (laughs) No, Noah has too much to drink. Uh, He's naked in his tent. Ham exposed him to his brothers. Uh, Ham is cursed. Or I should say the sons of, you know, or Ham is cursed there. And then even his great-grandson was Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Don't tell me they all worshipped him and all the nations lined up to just seek God after that. That's not what we read in Scripture. In fact, right after uh, the floodgates are open and God destroys the wicked on the earth, we read uh, in chapter 8, I believe it is. Well, I mean, I think I have the quotation here somewhere. 
Yeah, Genesis 8.21, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's right after the flood. So much for them all being righteous and and uh, and worshiping him. Uh, so we all we have all these ridiculous statements. I mean, we're just talking about the flood right now in Noah. It gets crazy throughout the book. First Enoch 10, 12 through 14, uh, straight said God would f- destroy the fallen angels and that he'd destroy them in 70 generations, beginning with the generation of Shem. Shouldn't have done that. They made a huge mistake. Well, of course, the authors of First Enoch, the human authors, uh, that were not inspired by God, they knew they'd be long gone before 70 generations after uh, uh, Shem, uh, from counting from Shem onward. And we go to the Gospel of Luke, and we just go through the Gospel of Luke, and you count from Shem onward. It starts before that, but you start at Shem, and 66 generations take you to the uh, time that Jesus lived, you know? And uh, it's interesting because then it's easy to count four generations after that, which brings you into the second century. So were the fallen angels destroyed in the second century? Absolutely not. Uh, we know in the scripture that we will judge angels, the church will judge angels. Well, we haven't done that yet. First Corinthians 6 states that we will. We read in Second uh, Peter 2, 4 that, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And it's interesting, they even have a different place to where the angels are. And in Isaiah chapter 24, verses 20 through 23, which is still future, and we're talking about even after the millennial period, this is when the angels are actually judged. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall and never rise again. That's still future, folks. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of the earth uh, on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. So they're not even punished then. That's because during the millennium, like Satan is bound, they'll be bound, I believe, uh, during that time. And after many days, like Satan is cast in the lake of fire, they too will be judged. And when we find out that their judgment, they'll be like uh, uh, imprisoned in the ruins of Babylon. However, God works that out. It's going to be interesting to see. Verse 23, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem as glory will be before the elders. So it's important that we understand this. There's a lot of false prophecies like that. And what does the Bible say about false prophets? Deuteronomy 18.22, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. So do not be alarmed. In Deuteronomy 13, 3 and 4, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall not follow, you, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice and serve him and cling to him. And that's in the context of someone having a dream and telling you to go after false gods. What's interesting that Enoch tells us actually, which we'll get to in a few moments, which Chad and I both have alluded to it now, is that, uh, Enoch was is basically the son of man. He's the coming Messiah. Yeah, I I think when it comes to this, and you know, I'm getting to see some of the chats as you guys are are going along and and talking on there, and I see some a lot of people saying, "Wow, thank you," you know, uh, for this because sometimes it, it can be difficult. And I, if you, I, I believe I, I checked out the audio book. If you went to go listen to the audio book, it's four and a half hours. It's a long book. It's a long book. It's, time it's not a, it's not a short bit. So when someone's telling you. Hey, you should read it. You should encouraging people to read it. One of the things is we're trying to show you quite clearly it has false prophecy. And if it has false prophecy, quite clearly the Bible says you should not fear them. As soon as someone is a false prophet, I don't trust them as being able to garner and Amen. give me the word of God and the word of truth. I can't trust first Enoch. 
That doesn't mean I don't trust the real Enoch from the scriptures, yeah. and I don't trust when Jude in the Grafe, in the scriptures, actually quoted Enoch. I trust that. I don't trust this book because, once again, if you really do the studying on it, you see it's written by multiple people. You see it's written not only in multiple time frames. You see it's written with false prophecies. But I think this last piece is the most damning bit of evidence concerning the book of Enoch is not Scripture. It is not the Word of God, and God didn't put it there. I mean, if something is theonostos, if something is God-breathed, it's Scripture. This is something that simply wasn't God-breathed, and I think Joe's going to bring we, that we out. We need to actually, you know, absolutely treasure the Word of God that God's Amen. given us and recognize that the Scriptures warned that these things would come about and that as a pastor, the pastoral epistles actually tell me as a pastor to warn you and my brothers and sisters in Christ of Jewish fables. And that's what the book of Enoch is, the Jewish fable. Mm. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. And I urge you, this is Paul telling Timothy what to do, uh, so they don't teach strange doctrines. In the first few verses of 1 Timothy 1, I urge you that when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some uh, that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith, which is basically what that book is doing right now. In 2 Timothy 3 and chapter 4, listen to this. All scriptures inspired of, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Preach the word, Paul says to Timothy. Be ready in season out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's just the pure word of God, right? They won't endure it. But wanting to have their ears tickled. Oh, have you heard about First Enoch? They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away uh, their ears from the truth and will turn aside to fables or to myths. And that's what Enoch is. In fact, we read uh, in an, uh, another place in Titus, another pastoral epistle in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where after Chad, it mentions in verses 9 and 10 that elders are supposed to be picked who will know how to refute false doctrines. So they need to know the scriptures and need to apply it to that which is false and reveal it under the floodlight of God's truth. We read a few verses later, verses 13 and 14. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men to turn, uh, who turn from the truth. And, and in contrast to that, in 1 Peter 1, 3 and in 1, 16, uh, we, we read that God's given us everything that's pertained to life and godliness through his word, the power of his Holy Spirit, and that we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitness of his majesty, the resurrection of Christ, and the word of God has been uh, bonafide and vouchsafed through the resurrection of Christ. Proverbs 35 and 6 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. So I think it's important that we get this. By the way, uh, the giants, the giants in the Bible, they're pretty tall. I mean, you read about Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 70, verse 4, a champion named Goliath who was uh, from Gath, uh, came out to the Philistines' camp, and his height was six cubits and a span. Some have that as six foot six, you know, which would have been tall in those days. I've, we've got friends like big Jim Sanford, six foot six, that's pretty huge to be especially big in those days uh many others have it as nine foot six inches depending depending on how you define a cubit nine uh foot six sounds uh more foreboding but guess what 
The giants were really a lot bigger than that, according to First Enoch. In First Enoch 7.3, it says that there were giants in those days uh, that uh, the giants were 3,000 L's tall. 3,000 L's tall. What in the world's an L? It says the wives of the fallen angels in chapter 7, verse 3, became pregnant, and they bare giant, great giants whose height was 3,000 L's. Now, an L is about mm, four or five handbreadths long, okay? Uh, so an L is about 18 inches long, and that would be these giants were about 4,500 feet tall, according to Enoch. And by the way, there's no manuscripts that have them as nine feet tall in, in first Enoch. They have them at 4,500 feet tall. That's 10 times the, the, the Great Tower, or I should say the Great Pyramid of Giza, is 455 feet tall. So if the Great Tower, that's football field and a half high. I mean, you're like, whoa. But guess what? These giants were 10 times taller than that pyramid, supposedly. The tallest building in the world I checked out in preparation for this was the Burj Khalifa, which is 2,716.5 feet tall. So these giants were almost twice as tall as the tallest building in the world. And <laughs> yet we're to believe that they were, you know, taking for themselves wives from around from regular humans and what have you. I don't, I don't even want to talk about what that would be like because <laughs> that's just so ridiculous. Yeah. So I think it's important that we understand a lot of this ridiculous, a, a few things about the false concepts. And I won't go and read all these texts, but in First Enoch uh, 72.1, we see and 72 in chapter three, 73. And I won't read the text to you because we're going to want to get to uh, the false, the false uh, version of the Messiah here. But it talks about how the chariot of the sun, that there's a chariot that drags the sun. And there's a chariot that drags the moon. And they actually taught that. And they're not, it's not meant to be metaphorical because it actually talks about there's creatures that are pulling them, you know, that there's creatures that are sun. It's often like what you'd read in some of the Platonic type stuff, you know, that each... Uh, each, you know, the stars, by the way, the physical stars are punished. Not the stars that represent, not the angels that stars could represent, but physical stars are represented because they don't come out and shine sometimes. So they're put in prison. Uh, just a bunch of just weird uh, mythology. And what that makes me just really treasure God's word even more because you don't read that ridiculous stuff. I mean, you might you read metaphorical type language, but, uh, and I could, I could actually wrote a lot of things down. From Enoch, if we wanted to elaborate on the whole thing about the stars and so forth. Uh, but by the way, uh, that comes from Helios, and it comes from Serene, uh, uh, a couple of the sun gods, in reference to the Greek mythology in the Second Temple period. And that mythology worked its way into the book of Enoch, to where, because they were drawn by chariots, you see, in the Second Temple period. That's what was taught uh, in Greek mythology. It worked its way into Enoch, which I think is very, very interesting. And it's interesting, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, uh, King Josiah, uh, it says that he destroys the sun idols that were uh, being drawn by chariots. We read, he desecrated Topheth, which was the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice the son or the daughter in the fire to Moloch. He removed from the entrance to the temple the Lord, the horses, and the kings of Judah, and uh, and that had been dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room. The official name, uh, Nathan Malek, and Josiah had burned the chariots, the chariots dedicated to the sun. So uh, the scriptures actually, you know, talk about Josiah, King Josiah, who was a righteous king, burning these idols that were made in the image of what the Greeks were worshiping that had worked themselves into Judaism. And we see in Enoch that those Jews there had, had written that they hadn't been influenced by those false god 
concepts. This is, to me, really heavy stuff, and I think this is absolutely devastating to uh, the, the claims of the book of Enoch and so forth. In fact, in 1 Enoch 32, 37, it states that in regard to the size of the sun and the moon, that, quote, their sizes, the difference in their sizes, what well, says this, but as regards size, they are both equal. That's what it says. They're both equal in size. Mm, not even close, okay? First Enoch 78.3 says, these are the two great lights. Their disc is like the disc of heaven, and in size, the two are equal. It says it a couple times uh, in there as well and so forth. So we can go on and on with, with these types of points, but I think it is important now to get into uh, chat. I, can, uh, I, I think those in our, our brothers and sisters would like to get into this. Uh, the book of Enoch uses terms like Messiah, the anointed one, the son of man, you know, the cho- chosen one over and over again. And there's a buildup. There's this buildup in the book of Enoch in chapters 37. And you mentioned it, Chad, all the way to chapter 71 of the, this messianic type figure. But it's interesting that you read of this figure, these figures over and over again. He will come to the earth and dwell with the righteous. First Enoch 45, three through six. Uh, he will destroy sinners and strike them uh, down kings and rulers who are against God. These are when these titles are being used from churches 31 to 71 or in the 37 to 71, I should say. He will be a light to the nations, 1 Enoch 48, 3 through 4. He will be worshipped by all who dwell on the earth, 1 Enoch 48, 5. His name, uh, the righteous, will have salvation, 1 Enoch 48, 7. The messianic figure will usher in this new age of peace, uh, 1 Enoch 69, 26 through 29. And they refer to him as the son of man. And then at the end of the parable of Enoch, when you get to chapter 71, uh, Enoch is taken to the heaven of heavens where he sees the fiery heavenly palace. So Enoch's like taken to the heaven of heavens to see this palace. And we have this dramatic revelation which is climactic to all these titles where we use the Messiah. And then something is said to Enoch. Listen to what's said. Okay. This is in 1 Enoch 71, verses 13 and 14. And the head, and this is the clincher, guys. Not that we need it anymore, right? But this gets into something that Chad and I, I believe most of you, or if not all of you, are interested in, to, because we, we got our antennas up, right? Our spiritual antennae up uh, to, to watch out for any false messiahs. And we read in the book of Enoch in chapter 71, verses 13 and 14, And the head of days came with Michael and Raphael and Gabriel and Phanuel and thousands and tens of thousands of angels without number. And he came to me and greeted me with his voice and said to me, You, speaking of Enoch, you are that son of man who was born for righteousness and righteousness dwells on you and the righteousness of the head of days will not forsake you. And then it goes on to say that all the righteous that go into heaven will be will cling to him and, he be, and they will be with him forever and ever as though they belong to him. And by the way, I will have to say this because some will be looking at R.H. Charles edition, which I was reading. I quote a lot from R.H. Charles edition in uh, many of my quotations here, which is a popular edition of the book of Enoch. He was a very good scholar in, in many ways. I acknowledge that. And guess what? He translates it this way. This is the son of man rather than you are the son of man. He translates it. This is the son of man rather than you are the son of man. From the second to the third person, as though he's not referring to Enoch. And there's a huge problem with that because there's no manuscript that has this is. They all have you. You are the, that son of man. Every single one of them. Uh, now, it's interesting. In his 1893 edition of Enoch, the same translator, the same scholar, has it translated correctly. You are the son of man. Speaking of Enoch. Okay. He changes it in the 1912 edition. 
And the reason was is because he wanted it to refer to Jesus. He didn't want it to refer to Enoch. He wanted to support the, the, the Christian church. And while he might have been well-meaning, he's changing what actually says, and he's actually doing more harm than good because then he's actually making it look as though, you know, Enoch may be talking about Jesus, although it's not, it's not about Jesus, obviously. Uh, he's talking about Enoch there. And he's wanting to refer to Jesus there. So it's interesting. Enoch and scholar uh, Leslie W. Walk, Walk explains, quote, Charles' solution was to amend the text of 1 Enoch 71.14 to the third person instead of the second person. Thus, Charles read, quote, this is the Son of Man, rather than you are the Son of Man. Then he made the necessary changes in the rest of the text to bring it into harmony with the third person rendering he, also suggesting that a paragraph which revealed the identity of the Son of Man has been lost. But this extensive amendation has no surviving textual basis in any of the manuscripts and for this reason is to be rejected. In other words, he didn't just change this or you are the Son of Man to this. Then after that, when it refers to Enoch, he he changes those words, too, to make it as though it refers to somebody else. Renowned scholar John uh, J. Collins uh, also criticized Charles's approach. Quote, the solution of Charles was to amend 7114 to read, this is the son of man, and change you to him in the following verses. This procedure has no basis in the text and is clearly unacceptable. Okay. Uh, T.W. Manson also quips, quote, here we abandon Charles. You got to abandon Charles at this point, he states, uh, who has rewritten the rest of the passage in accordance with his view of what Enoch ought to have said. Okay. And unfortunately, that's what happens when you talk to people. A lot of people that are quoted the book of Enoch and the book of Enoch, they don't even know most of what we're talking about. But some that do or study it will try to make excuses to get around this, you know. Uh, but it's interesting because even R.H. Charles himself admits in the footnote for 7114, quote, uh, thou art the son, it's a little footnote below, thou art the son of man who art born unto righteousness. So he quotes it correctly there in the footnote, and righteousness abides over thee, is an application to Enoch of the words used of the son of man. He admits it. It's really an application to Enoch. And so even the author who changes it admits in his footnote, that's really talking about Enoch in the actual text. And he wants to believe that maybe it was changed or what have you and so forth. So it's interesting here because Enoch is being basically identified as the son of man. And right after that, we read in verses 15 and 16, thus the teaching contained in first Enoch, okay? Uh, we read, okay, those are my words. Uh, but we, we read in first Enoch that uh, he goes on to say that everybody was separated to him in verses 15 and 16, which we won't get into, but I had mentioned already. But I just think it's important that we understand that we're talking about Christ, being robbed of his title of the Son of Man and being applied to Enoch, who's built up to be no less than a God figure throughout the book of First Enoch. It's a false teaching by Jews who were looking for the Messiah and hoped that it would be Enoch. And then you have Christians taking it and saying, oh, well, really that must refer to Jesus. No, that referred to, this is a fabrication, a fable, which we're commanded not to have anything to do with and to refute. Uh, that was... Now, as being now applied by Christians, they're saying, well, really, it's talking about Jesus. Well, the text itself clearly, clearly in 71, 13 and 14 refers to Enoch as the messianic son of man, robbing Jesus of that title. And it's not a reference to Jesus. And I believe it's satanic, especially when you have the coming of the Messiah will be this lamb with two horns, which fits the false prophet in Revelation chapter 13. And to me, it looks like a setup. And by the way, I mentioned that there's several uh, different books. Cyril of 
Jerusalem, even before him, I, I, I said Miletus, unfortunately, but Melito, uh, the bishop of, of Sardis, he gave the first list of the Old Testament canon in 170 AD, and guess what? Enoch is not found in that list, and I can read off to you all kinds of lists, like 25 different lists, and he's not found in any of those 25 lists from the first thousand years after Christ. So again, we're not supposed to add the Lord's the, the scripture. Uh, if we do, uh, he will rebuke us, and we need to be careful of deception in the end times. And Satan would love to take our eyes off of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation and put it on fantastical books to look for the wrong Messiah. And they say, wow, the false prophet. You know, he has, you know, this this lamb with two horns is a symbol or whatever it will look like. So it says in Revelation 13. So however that manifests. Well, the book of Enoch says that that's the Messiah. Well, it says he'll look like a lamb. He'll look like the Messiah, but he'll speak like a dragon. It'll be a huge deception. Stay with the word of God, beloved. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.